Yeah. So the Ryan Haidt Act um, is a 2008 U.S. federal law that requires an in-person examination before a prescribing provider can prescribe a controlled substance. So the intention of the Ryan Haidt Act is good, right? The intention of the Ryan Haidt Act is to prevent the abuse and diversion of controlled substances. Mm -hmm. And the way that it theoretically does that is by ensuring that the only way I can get a controlled medication in the United States is with a legitimate prescription. So the problem is that the Ryan Haidt Act only considers a legitimate prescription after a patient has been seen in person by a prescriber. But this law was written in 2008, which was two years before FaceTime, and it doesn't match how we treat patients now. Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa DiDonato. And I'm Marian Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a pen nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. Today on the Amplify Nursing Podcast, we talk to Dr. Bridget Gannon. Bridget is a psychiatric nurse practitioner and serial entrepreneur. She's the co-founder of Lavender, an online psychiatric and therapy office led and operated by nurses. Today, we talk with Bridget about the Ryan Height Act, informing policy with evidence, and some of the many challenges facing the U.S. healthcare system. So Bridget, thank you so much for coming today. I really appreciate you speaking with us. Yeah, no worries. I'm so glad to see you, Ange. I miss you. We're dear friends, and I'm really excited to... Um, chat about some hot topic healthcare issues. It's a it's a super interesting, yeah, phenomenon that we have here in the United States. I know, I know. Well, working with Canadians at Lavender, you know, our operations team is Canadian, and they are constantly alarmed at how complicated our healthcare system is. Yeah, yeah. and how none of it really makes sense. Yeah. And it's just getting more and more complicated and more and more, it's a behemoth. It's such an incredible, it's a, it's close. We're inching towards 20% of our GDP. Wow. Is healthcare. Yeah. And, and what, how does that compare to other countries of our size? It's like double. It's almost double. Yeah. Yeah. When you take a look at the countries that we compare ourselves to, like the European Western countries, they're, they're looking at 10, 10% of their GDP. Wow. And our healthcare outcomes are not better. No, they're not. Right? So that's the thing. It's like, we're spending more money on healthcare, but our outcomes are not better. Right. It's like almost Correct. like a version. So there's countries that spend less of their GDP on healthcare, but their healthcare outcomes are better probably because they focus more on preventative. And the social determinants of health have a much bigger impact on what outcomes are versus medical interventions. Yeah. So you're, you're right in your assumption that the people that the, the places that have found a way to integrate all of those things have much better outcomes in general. Mm. Yeah. So we wanted to talk about the Ryan hate act. Yeah. So I was reading a little bit about this morning and it's incredibly interesting. It was put on hold during COVID 
So let's talk about first, what is it? The Ryan Haidt Act. Yeah, so the Ryan Haidt Act um, is a 2008 U.S. federal law that requires an in-person examination before a prescribing provider can prescribe a controlled substance. It was named after a teenager called Ryan Haidt, who died from a drug overdose um, of prescription drugs that were illegally obtained from an online pharmacy. So the intention of the Ryan Haidt Act is good, right? The intention of the Ryan Haidt Act is to prevent the abuse and diversion of controlled substances. Mm -hmm. And the way that it theoretically does that is by ensuring that the only way I can get a controlled medication in the United States is with a legitimate prescription. So this teenager, Ryan Haidt, overdosed because he was able to purchase controlled substances from an online pharmacy without a legitimate prescription. Okay. So the problem is that the Ryan Haidt Act only considers a legitimate prescription after a patient has been seen in person by a prescriber. But this law was written in 2008, which was two years before FaceTime. So it's a very misguided, dated law, and it doesn't match how we treat patients now. Correct. With telemedicine. So during COVID, the Ryan Haidt Act was put on hold to allow people to engage in telemedicine, be able to access their providers without going into offices and things like that and potentially exposing people. Exactly. Um, So it was was put on hold so that people could access care, right? Mm. Because people are taking controlled medications for legitimate medical reasons, and they needed to continue those controlled medications during COVID, and they weren't able to do that by seeing their provider in person. Exactly. Yeah. So so let me ask you this. When we're talking about controlled substances, people, I think, tend to get a little nervous and scared. And of course, they're thinking things like opioid prescriptions and things like that. So what are some other drugs that are controlled substances that people may not be thinking are controlled? Yeah. So the three that we deal with most in psychiatry are the stimulants like Ritalin and Adderall for ADHD, mm-hmm. the benzodiazepines like Xanax or Clonopin or Ativan, which are typically prescribed for panic disorder or sometimes, you know, short-term as needed for like flying anxiety or public speaking anxiety. And then super importantly, Suboxone, which is a, you know, evidence-based effective life-saving medication for the treatment of opioid addiction. So that's sort of the irony of the Ryan Haidt Act is that they, the act is trying to prevent the diversion and the abuse of controlled medications, but it's actually preventing providers from prescribing things like Suboxone, which actually helps people with their opioid addiction. Wow. Yeah. And similarly, there's a lot of evidence that the stimulants like Ritalin and Ativan also prevent overdose and help people with their substance use because a lot of patients that have opioid addiction or other addictions also have ADHD and they're self-medicating with the wrong drugs. They really should just be on a stimulant. So a lot of patients that have, that suffer with addiction, once you diagnose them with what they're actually suffering from, which is ADHD and get them treated, they have a much easier time staying sober. Yeah. So yeah. So that's kind of like the irony of the Ryan Haidt Act is it's actually preventing people from getting medications that help them um, stay sober. So it seems like there's a multiple things that are happening 
that are making it difficult to ha- allow people to have access to the drugs that they need, you know, should things like ADH medication and suboxone be put in the same bucket as oxycodone, you know, that's a question. Maybe we need to stratify that differently. And then the other question is, especially when we're talking about utilizing telemedicine platforms for people who don't necessarily have access to psychiatry because they're living in rural areas, or it's just very difficult to get to, that you would think that maybe we could amend this act to say they need to be seen by a, you know, family practitioner that can then connect with the psychiatry office and say, you know, they're healthy and they can tolerate this. I mean, I feel like there's so many compromises that can be made with this to allow people to continue to have access through telemedicine. But even like, so even the compromises are not evidence-based though. Like Mm -hmm. what, why does, why does my patient who has ADHD, I've seen them, I've medically determined that they have ADHD and need to see a family nurse practitioner or family provider to mm-hmm. be cleared for a stimulant. There's no, none of the guidelines for prescribing stimulants or benzodiazepines or suboxone require or recommend these in-person exams. They're not evidence-based. There's no evidence that telepsychiatry is any less effective or any less safe than in-person care. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was thinking about, which was like an aha moment for me is that the irony of the Ryan Hyde Act is that it was it was designed to, like I said, reduce abuse of controlled medications, but it hasn't done that. Right. Like, like it's it, it was made in 2008. And since then, we've had 1 million people die of drug overdoses. Right. So it's it's not working, right? Yeah. It, it was, it was it up until COVID, it was it was in place. And it hasn't prevented prescription drug abuse because it doesn't actually address the root causes of addiction. So that to me was like, you know, it's not working. You know, maybe if it worked and there was evidence that these this in-person exam requirement somehow prevents abuse and diversion, I would be more down to support it. But it, it isn't working. It right. hasn't worked. And it just makes you wonder how many laws and regulations we have in place just for those specific reasons that have never been removed and are, you know, creating barriers to all different kinds of things because we're not revisiting them. Yeah. I mean, 2008 is a long time ago. Think about how the, how much the world has changed. Yeah. Like you said, we don't even have FaceTime and it's hard to put that even into context. Like, I don't even remember what that was like. Right. Right. Because it was a long time ago. (laughs) I was like a child. (laughs) Yeah. It was like a really long time ago. Yeah. Um, There was something else that you said that I wanted. Oh, I think the other piece that's important to talk about is that, you know, yes, there's this. So one option would be, okay, your argument is that telemedicine is really the most effective and most helpful for people that are in low resource or rural areas because Mm -hmm. they can't find a prescriber. Mm -hmm. But my argument back to that would be, we have such a mental health crisis in the United States, and we have such a shortage of psychiatric providers. I think Mm -hmm. I read somewhere that I think we're, we're like lacking like 48,000 psychiatric prescribers in the United States. And 50% of counties in the United States don't have one psychiatrist in their county. Wow. So really everywhere in the United States is low resourced for mental health treatment. 
Right. Um, so it would be really hard to kind of decide who would be considered in a rural area or a low resourced area. I mean, even in New York City, people talk about how they have they struggle finding a psychiat- psychiatrist or psych MP. And that's New York City, right? Yeah. So I don't know if that would really work because yeah. every every region in the United States doesn't have enough mental health providers. Right. Yeah, there's there's definitely a shortage here in Philadelphia as well. It's really, really difficult to get in to yeah. see anyone. Yeah. And I don't, do you remember, Ange, when um, before telehealth with Medicare, Medicare would only pay for telehealth when a Medicare patient was was located in what they considered like a low resource area. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had a database where you could search a zip code and you could see if your patient was was in their like low resource area. And it never made any sense to me. Um, because we were servicing nursing homes via telehealth. And first, before COVID, I had to check and see if Medicare would pay for their telehealth services. And it it just seemed sort of random. Like I would look up places, zip codes of towns that I, in my opinion, really seemed very rural and low resource. And then the Medicare database would come back to me and tell me that they weren't eligible for telehealth. So I think it would be really hard to accurately kind of like divide the country into regions that can have more telehealth flexibility, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. Well, telehealth is definitely another hot button topic that needs to be revisited in its entirety, not just in prescriptive Mm. purposes. Again, in I teach this policy class and we were just having a conversation with the students that one of the original laws stated that you could see a specialist via telehealth, but you had to go to your doctor's office and then tell, and then utilize their like computer basically to see the specialist via telehealth. The thing was though, and this was the part that was really interesting. And this is the part of course that blows my mind. Cause it's like, we're constantly trying to, to drive down costs and make things efficient and make them, you know, cost effective. And so you had to go to your doctor, you had to make an appointment, go to your doctor's office to then use their equipment to telehealth with the specialist and both the physician provider whose equipment you were using and the specialist were getting reimbursed for the visit. So it's like, what is happening here? And where is the specialist in this appointment? Yeah, they're they're on the, you know, you're you're telehealthing them from their office, wherever their office is. Oh, so man. I think I think the law was put in place so that you could see specialists from like all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you were being uh, referred to a specialist. But the yeah. bottom line is is that you were still paying two yeah. providers. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. so that you could see one person with a computer. And again, yeah. when you talk about how dated everything was everyone has a phone now, you know what I mean? Like you can just see that provider on your own phone in your own house, you know, whatever, you don't have to go anywhere to do it. So I think that it's, yeah, it's a really, really, we're not keeping up the regulations and the, the decisions that we're making as a country are not keeping up with the technology that's at hand. Yeah. And I'm, and, and healthcare in particular, I'm not surprised at all. We're never caught up. We're always Mm -hmm. like 15 years behind every industry. Like there's something culturally challenging in healthcare where we seem very, very resistant to innovation and change. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that we're, I mean, I, I I did like a LinkedIn poll um, where I asked, you know, should someone be required to see their provider in person before they receive a controlled medication? And most of my connections on LinkedIn are healthcare providers. And like 50% of the, the respondents 
said that they should be required to see an in-person provider. And like, where does that come from, right? Does that come from a place of knowing and knowledge or does that come from a place of that's always the, been the way things are done, right? right. You know, like yeah. where does that come from? Why, why, why is that necessary to, to do? Right. Uh, you know what I would, t- I have to say, I fall into that same mix because when we were just talking a few minutes ago and I was saying, oh, well, you know, maybe a compromise would be see your family doctor without having in, any knowledge about what it means to be on any kind of psychiatric medication. And do you need to be, you know, evaluated, physically evaluated for any of that stuff anyway? I mean, I, and I think also it's my anesthesia lens, right? Yeah. Because the medications that I'm using on a regular yeah. basis have a profound effect on people's physiology. And we need to have a really clear idea about what their heart function is, right. what their liver function is, what their kidney function is. Otherwise catastrophic things can happen. So I think part of it is my lens of you really do have to see someone and have things be evaluated before I give those medications. But we're talking about a whole different class of medications that are doing a whole bunch of different things. Totally. And also, you know, we're traumatized by the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. Like I, I even have to fight against my bias of being like, maybe somebody should be seen in person because, mm-hmm. you know, we, that was, it's horrible that we contributed. We're all responsible for that crisis. Like we mm-hmm. did not do enough to prevent these prescriptions from being prescribed in mass. And mm-hmm. literally I, everybody knows people in their lives who, who's like physicians and nurse practitioners got them addicted to drugs, like, yeah. and like it ruined families. And I think we're sort of traumatized by that. And we want to take action and we want to do something to protect patients again. So I think that's part of the motivation to support the in-person requirement. But my argument again would say, all of the prescriptions prior to COVID that we prescribed to patients that got them addicted to opioids were prescribed in person, Ange. Yeah. So there's nothing about being in person that prevented people from getting addicted to prescription medications. Right. Right. All those prescriptions were prescribed with an in-person exam. Right. And, you know, I worked in, you know, women's health a woman's shelter for women with, with mental illness and chemical addiction. And there is a look to someone who has been chronically addicted to opioids, mm-hmm. either prescription or heroin and mm-hmm. physicians, there's a look to it. They, they scratch their skin a lot. They lose a lot of weight. Um, and like physicians should have seen that and yeah. there should have seen that before they continued all these prescriptions. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I think in retrospect, there was, you know, the intense marketing that went along specifically with oxycodone that convinced a lot of people that what they were giving wasn't addictive, you know, and then even, even, I mean, even our regulatory bodies got into it. I mean, I remember when I was first a practicing nurse, we would get dinged when Jayco would come in and do chart reviews. And we were not assessing people's pain on a regular basis, even though they weren't there for something that would cause them pain. And if they said that they had some sort of pain, the expectation was the physician of record was going to then prescribe them some sort of pain medication because nobody should have any pain. And when you think about it now, it's out, it's, it's crazy to think Mm -hmm. that 
you know, you're a human being walking around in the world. Pain is a part of your daily existence, (laughs) be it emotional pain, physical pain, whatever pain is a part of the deal. And you can't, you can't get away from it. You know, you have to, you can figure it out. You can mitigate it. You can do different things. But we were literally like, I remember literally just being so frustrated that you get pulled into the manager's office and they were like, you did not every eight hours, you had to assess the person's pain and they needed a pain score. And, Mm -hmm. and this pain score was seven and you did not call the physician. And I'm like, I don't know, we had other things. I gave them some Tylenol and that seemed to do the trick. Like what? And it's crazy to me. So I am frustrated also with the fact that, you know, our regulatory bodies were also complicit in this, this whole fiasco. Absolutely. And you're right. Like, I mean, you know, you, I think like Siddhartha or somebody said life is suffering, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like you're right. Like there's always going to be life is suffering. There's always going to be some discomfort in your life. So before that change, Ange, were people's were you witnessing like a lot of suffering, like maybe too much suffering? Like it must've come from something, right? Like were people in too much pain after surgery and things like that? I think in, I think in retrospect, I mean, I, I can only talk, I came into this at the late nineties where this was the big push. Pain was the fifth vital sign. And this is where we were going. So I'm not sure what it looked like prior to that. And of course, you know, my lens is now colored by, the documentaries and the now what we know about what was going on with Purdue Pharma and the mass marketing that they were doing and how they were really, really influential in convincing people that this was safe pain medicine that was non-addictive and, you know, you didn't need to worry about prescribing it to people. So it seems like a great thing at the time. And I I think that, you know, like you said, there are many providers who are complicit in getting people addicted. They didn't do it purposefully. They were under the understanding that this was okay and that it was a safe drug. And I think that that's what we need to start to think about as practitioners and providers is when something is too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just anecdotally, and it's kind of a funny story. And I tell a lot of people, I took care of a person who, I was doing a procedure on them and it was a, you know, a short procedure. And they asked me, what are you going to give me for a sedation? And I said, we're going to use a drug called propofol. They said, oh, my mom was a chemical engineer and she worked on that drug, but that's the only one she ever tells people she worked on because she says it's the best drug she ever made. For somebody who spent their life working in chemicals and pharmaceuticals, understanding yeah. that yeah. there are a lot of them that don't have great side effects or don't do all the things that they expect. There's one drug out there that you, they feel comfortable in saying, oh yeah, I worked on that. Yeah. Because and I'm proud very of it. predictable and I'm proud of it. Yeah. yeah I love it. <laughs> yeah. I so, love it. I always, I always find that story completely fascinating. And this, the person was very like, he was all proud of himself too. So it was, it was kind of funny. I was like, well, to me, (laughs) that is a gold star recommendation for the, the comfortable use of propofol in my practice. Yeah. And and that's (laughs) a totally appropriate way to use it too. Yeah. And I get that. I mean, it is important. I mean, it is important to bring up that you know, we, 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 there is like an Adderall shortage in the United States. And we did, you know, I, I think like stimulant prescribing went up by 30% during COVID. I guess what I would say is that we are, I think, over prescribing stimulants. Mm-hmm. I think that they are addictive 
just like mm-hmm. the opioids. They, people during COVID were really struggling with working from home. Um, and when you take Adderall and Ritalin, even if you don't have ADHD, it will help you work, right? It mm-hmm. will help anybody work and focus. So I don't think we should ignore that that is happening and that we need to train prescribers to make sure that they are doing really solid evaluations of patients before they use a stimulant as a treatment recommendation. However, there's nothing about an in-person exam by like a primary care doctor that's going to ensure that someone is actually getting a medication that they're clinically indicated for. I guess that's my argument. It's not addressing the root cause of why we have kind of over-prescribed stimulants during COVID. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe the argument is that if you require someone to go in person that they, I hate to use, I mean, what's the word drug seeking? If they're seeking drugs that they maybe, they they don't necessarily have a clinical indication for, that that would be like a barrier to them. But like, that's not how it works when people are addicted to prescription medications, they will get them, you know, an in-person exam is not going to prevent them from trying to get those medications. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When people have an, have a, a true addiction, nothing's going to stop them from getting what they, what they want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we used to see it. Yeah. People are incredibly resourceful because it's just the the addiction drive is so strong, you know, Mm -hmm. and they really suffer if they don't get the medication that they're like addicted to. But yeah, we definitely have a, you know, I think that will be the next kind of crisis is the stimulant crisis because we have prescribed a lot of stimulants since COVID, Mm -hmm. which is too bad because like the opioids, there are many appropriate times to prescribe stimulants and ADHD medications are like life-changing for people who have ADHD. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, read some of the, you know, Facebook boards about the Ryan Hyde Act, there are patients that are terrified that they're going to lose access to their stimulants and it's changed their lives. They, you know, they talk about how they're finally contributing to society, how their relationships with their spouses are better, how they feel like they're finally functioning. I mean, we have nurse practitioners at Lavender who say that it would be dangerous for their patients to drive a car if they don't have their stimulant. Wow. That's how much functional impairment there is with their ADHD. I know people who have used other substances for significant periods of time And then after seeking some sort of therapy and not even, we're not, I'm not even talking about like, you know, a hardcore drug addiction, but self-medicating with other substances. And then after seeing a therapist and getting a diagnosis and being started on stimulants, they're like, I don't need, I don't need to drink three glasses of wine every night. Yep. You know what I mean? I don't need to use marijuana. I don't. Because they, they were self-medicating, they were utilizing what they had in order to help with, you know, the struggles that they were having. They were, they were treating the wrong thing with the wrong drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we always say that in psychiatry, you got to get the right drugs for your brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is not an uncommon story at all. You hear stories like that all the time. Adults that were self-medicating with alcohol or marijuana, not necessarily like, you know, maybe not to the point of substance use disorder, but um, really had ADHD. And once their ADHD is treated, they reduce their alcohol and their marijuana intake like significantly. So that's not, that's a very common experience for adults. Mm -hmm. When you prescribe somebody stimulants for ADHD, 
is the expectation that they're going to utilize those for the rest of their life? Or is it something that is a bridge to something else? Like, how does it work? Cause I'm, I'm not familiar at all. Yeah. It's a really, you know, we talk a lot about medication stigma at lavender. Cause I find mm-hmm. that I feel like as a culture, you know, mental health is not as stigmatized. People are totally comfortable talking about going to therapy and going to coaching and reading self-help. But I find with the medication piece, people are still, there's a lot of shame around it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you kind of hear is when people talk about being on medications, I'll say, well, it's only for a short time, or I just need to get through this period of my life. But ADHD is a chronic condition, just like when somebody has high blood pressure and the expectation is yes, that they, they would benefit from being on it for their whole lives. Of course, there, there are like non-drug interventions for ADHD. Um, there's a lot of like CBT, um, interventions you can utilize. Mindfulness meditation has been helpful for ADHD, but it's not an illness of like willpower. Like it's a biochemical disease. So yeah, somebody would be on ADHD medications for the entirety of their lives. Uh Yeah. I think when someone's like life responsibilities change, like maybe if they become retired and they don't have the same kind of like responsibilities, they might be able to reduce their medications. But, and the same with the antidepressants, you know, if someone has major depressive disorder, it will, it's okay if they have to be on an SSRI for the rest of their lives. Yeah, You know, they have a chronic condition, just like high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We don't tell patients with high blood pressure that this is only temporary, right? you know, but I think that's our own discomfort with psychiatric medications. I think we're still trying to figure out how to talk about them. Yeah. And we don't know. I mean, the truth is, I mean, I'm not like a neuropsychiatrist, but I think that a lot of the psych meds, they're not totally sure how they work. (laughs) And that's the other problem too. Like with a high blood pressure, we can like have someone take their blood pressure and we can say like, this is your blood pressure. So like you need high blood pressure medication, but with psychiatric symptoms, you know, there's no like test for depression or like one test or test for ADHD that is really objective. So I think that adds to kind of the stigma around meds. Yeah. It's all very subjective and patient dependent. Yeah. Yeah. And as it should be though, because it's all about the patient's experience, all about the person's experience. Yeah. And they're the only ones who can really say whether or not they're getting a benefit from what's happening. Yeah. So, so what are like, what are like your students saying and your colleagues, like, what are people, what is your sense with the Ryan Hyatt and the, this in-person requirement Do people understand it? Do people realize the impact it could have if we bring back this in-person? So we were, we, it's interesting. Like I said, we were talking about it in, in policy. I have the students they did a group project where they kind of dive into a policy and and talk about it in front of the class. And the, we were talking about telemedicine. Mm-hmm. And what we were talking about was the fact that nothing's really been updated. You know, we have these very archaic regulations that say, like I said, you have to go to a doctor's office <laughs> in order to <laughs> in order to Zoom with a specialist, you know. And, you know, there were a lot of issues with, with privacy and then also prescription drugs. And the discussion that we started to have, I actually brought up Ryan hate because I had been talking to Preetma about it. And that was something that the students were actually saying was like a really good thing. They were like, oh yeah, you can't get, 
narcotics this way. You can't get controlled substances this way. And I'm like, okay, but what are controlled substances? And then of course the conversation segued into, there's a lot of things that we do. It's such a behemoth that the system is such a behemoth that it's so difficult to look at something that's already, that's in statute and we're doing something because that's the rule. And we're like, but this rule doesn't make any sense. And it makes it very difficult for us to practice and treat patients, but we're going to continue to do it anyway, because it's the rule. And then when you try and change the rule, it turns into another big problem. So whether it's being utilized as a political tool or all different things like that. So it's super fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think if it worked and it had reduced all of this like opioid crisis, then, you know, there would be some value in it, but it didn't work. Right. And we ended up in a huge opioid crisis. I, you know, I would support something like, you know, before you are prescribed a stimulant, you need to be seen by a psychiatric nurse practitioner, psychiatrist that does a full one hour face-to-face exam telehealth. Mm -hmm. That to me is like a clinical standard that would ensure that anybody who's prescribed a stimulant has been really thoroughly evaluated for ADHD. Right. Um, The problem is, is that this in-person exam requirement doesn't dictate what that exam looks like. So like, it could be like a five minute visit, Ange. Wow. There's no, there's no details in the Ryan Hyde Act about what is the in-person exam. Right. I, I could literally send a patient, my patient to you, you could take their blood pressure and that would count as the in-person exam requirement. Oh, wow. Yeah. So not doing anything to protect the patient in any way. It's yeah, just to, checking, it's just checking a box because that's exactly, exactly. Yeah. Or to ensure that they were like really thoroughly assessed, you know, so like done in a head who've been, in, you know, had a lot of trouble um, because they were, I think, accused of maybe prescribing stimulants too freely without, you know, a lot of clinical evidence that patients actually had ADHD, a lot of their care was done asynchronously. Mm -hmm. Um, So their psych evaluations, I believe are only 30 minutes, which is atypical. Typically a first time psychiatric evaluation for ADHD would be an hour. Okay. So it's a lower standard of assessment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And what do you mean by asynchronous? Asynchronous meaning that patient provided their history via like questionnaires not face-to-face. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So they filled yeah. out a questionnaire, sent it to the provider, and then the provider smiled and waved and sent them a prescription. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. I was trying to, I was trying yeah. to figure out what, how asynchronous would work with, with an, a physician. Which, yeah. You know, which like, I'm not totally against asynchronous in the sense that we do not have enough mental health providers. So we do mm-hmm. have to figure out a way to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. It, like a lot of your history from your patient and mental health can be you can, the patient can give their history before your appointment with them. And it does make the appointment more efficient. Right. Um, But I think, so there's some cool like innovation and opportunity there to explore asynchronous mental health care treatment. But I think for certain diagnoses like ADHD or panic disorder, where you're going to prescribe a controlled med that does have addiction potential, you, you need to have like a full one hour tele face-to-face assessment. Right. And I I will say too, like I've, you know, the first time going to see a provider for therapy filled out the 52 pages or whatever, but then when I'm in front of them, you know, even via telemed, 
they're going through the paperwork and saying, okay, well, let's talk about this. And then they're asking me questions about, I mean, it actually makes sense to be able to do it that way because the person, you know, if you throw a question at me, the answer is going to be really different versus if I have time to sit and think about it Mm -hmm. and write it out. And then you have the opportunity to come out and ask more questions about it. And if you're doing that in one session, the session could be a whole lot shorter if I were to give you a bunch of preemptive answers that you would then review and go over with me versus you throw these questions at me and then I'm just throwing answers at you because I, you know, I'm not sure how to answer that question right away. Or especially when you're talking about mental health things, you know, things are a little triggering, you know, you're talking about you know, childhood traumas and core memory wounds and all these different things. It can be a lot to just kind of expect someone to just verbalize things like that and and really understand it and get to the meat of it if you're trying to work with that particular issue. Yeah, totally. It's way easier to write things down sometimes than to say things face-to-face, especially with some like a stranger. It's kind of a lot to ask of clients and patients for them to talk about the things we ask them to talk about in their first therapy appointment. It's a lot. It's a vulnerable situation. You don't know this person. Um, So yeah, questionnaires can be helpful in that way. At Lavender, I'm always shocked at how open and honest people are in their intake paperwork. And I think Mm -hmm. like you said, if you have the time to sit there and you have the time to think about it, um, you can be like a little more vulnerable. Yeah. Especially if you're to the point where you really want to work on the issue that you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes it wide open. Oh man, the war. <laughs> I'm like at this point where I don't want to do like any emotional work on myself. <laughs> it's like too much work. <laughs> it's hard, Ange. It's hard work. I know. It's hard. I know it's hard work. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard work. Hard. Yeah. 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 It's a big challenge. Yeah. I think that uh it's been fun. It's been fun to explore things, but it's you know, it's still every once in a while I, I hit something that I'm like, oh man, let me try and tuck that back into the box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> put it yeah. under the bed. Yeah, exactly. And pretend it's not there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You're like, I'm not really ready for that one yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not that's totally yet. fine. You know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We don't have to like expose all our wounds at once, all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I, I almost wonder if that's not the way the government feels when they're looking at regulation. In general, they're going, oh man, we can't tackle this yet. Let's just put it back in the box and and stick it away and not worry about it. I think that's I think you're absolutely right. I think with the Ryan Height Act in particular, I think they're I think they just don't have the capacity right now yeah. to change the law. I really do. I agree with you. I think that they just don't have the capacity to revamp the law of with all the things that are going on in the world. Yeah. I think they that's part of it. Yeah. Because all of the, the American Medical Association, the American Association of Telehealth, the American Psychiatric Association, like they all have made public statements about how they do not agree with the Ryan Hyde Act and how it hurts patients and it hurts families and it, it prevents providers from providing care. So they don't have the support from the, the medical community. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're right. I think it's just like, maybe they don't have a capacity right now to tackle it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hot button, hot button topic, I guess. Yeah. A lot in healthcare is. Yeah. What else is going on in healthcare? 
I mean, all the things we were talking earlier before we jumped on about Medicare for all. Oh yeah. 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 And the, uh, the potential implications there. Yeah, I think you're right. Like I've always had a soft spot for Medicare for all, and I've always advocated for it just because I just feel so strongly that healthcare should be a human right. And I think it's ridiculous that people are born without healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, like housing, housing should also be a human right. But I agree with you that, you know, once you add the government to things, it just is not going to be as efficient and innovative. I'm sure there's a compromise in there somewhere because it, it is really important to access. And this is one of the things that we talk about in policy is one of the first things that I talk about with the students. And I kind of give them a lecture on the history of the healthcare industry in the United States. And that's exactly what it is. It's an industry just like any other. Mm. And the goal of the industry is to generate an income. It's to generate Mm. money. Our goal is not to take care of patients, even Mm. with all of the healthcare reform and Obamacare and all these wonderful things, they've all focused on giving people access to insurance. Nobody really has, unless you're in jail, unless you are in the middle of a medical emergency, or unless you are a pregnant woman, you have no right to healthcare in this country. And that's something that I think is shocking to most people because we, as Americans feel like we have a right to a lot of things and you, we really don't understand that you, you don't have that right. Yeah. And you, we, with the overhaul of the healthcare industry in the early 20, in 2010, when we passed the Affordable Care Act, which was the biggest move we've made toward getting as many people as we can having to have access to care, our choice was to give them insurance and then, you know, allow them access to care from there. And yeah, our, it was, yeah, it was just, we just gave them the option to purchase private insurance. Correct. Like, yeah. Which was, like you said, I mean, that was like revolutionary. You couldn't mm-hmm. just go on the free market and purchase insurance, but, you know, private health insurance on the market is 800 to $1,000 a month. It ain't cheap. Yeah. It's not so, cheap. Yeah. Yeah. It's not cheap. And they, you know, there's, there, there are a lot of incentives for it. And I, as we were talking earlier, I think allowing if we would take that concept of Medicare for all and open Medicare up as part of a policy that you could purchase, Mm. you know, if that might be a a super interesting idea also, as opposed to having all of the other, you know, exchanges and all those different things, because the one of the rules for being in the exchange for the Affordable Care Act is you have to meet certain requirements. You have to offer specific things. And a lot of the preventive things are free. So, you know, offering, making sure you get to see your general provider once a year, GYN exams once a year, mammograms, preventive screening for cancer and things like that. And that's phenomenal. It would be interesting to see if that was, that was, sort of a compromise that come could come into it. I can only imagine that it would make Medicare, I don't want to say make it cheaper, but like we were talking earlier, when you consider that Medicare is, it's a population of people who are over 65, who are high utilizers of the medical insurance. If you bring in a bunch of people who are fairly young and not utilizing it as much or utilizing it for much less expensive things, and having them pay into that system, it might actually help to support 
Medicare rather than, you know, turn into a dream. But again, just making it that much bigger sounds also a little bit daunting and inefficient by nature. Yeah. I think that they say that, I mean, that's one of the arguments for Medicare for all is that it would help with the risk pool and it would make it more, it would make it cheaper for everybody. I think one thing that I always think about though, is like commercial insurance is not that organized either, Ange. And it's also like, it's as annoying to deal with as a patient as Medicare. They also have a lot of layers of bureaucracy, you know? So it's like, oh, for sure. They almost like function like the government commercial insurance. Like they're, so, you know, the private versus public, argument that you can typically make is, I, I don't know if it applies to commercial insurance versus Medicare, because the commercial insurance is like also a beast and they have tons of layers of management. And it's really con- hard to figure out as a patient and provider how to navigate that system. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, at Lavender, we probably spend two hours a day dealing with prior authorizations from commercial insurance. Like what mm-hmm. a waste of. Yeah resource, right? Like I'd rather have a nurse educator on our team mm-hmm. than like have to pay somebody to deal with prior offs from insurance companies. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then it's the whole frustration too of, you know, that's one of the things it's funny. I, I had a discussion with someone not too long ago and my thoughts about the healthcare system are definitely probably more progressive than most. And this person was a little bit more on the conservative side. And they were like, well, this is, this is what capitalism is all about. And our health insurance industry is not even capitalism. Capitalism is very simple. You see something, you want it, you pay for it, you get it, you know what you're buying. Consumers have no idea how much things cost. Providers half the time don't know how much things cost. There's this third party that they're going to decide whether or not they're going to pay for this service. And in anesthesia, this is a really big issue because especially when you're talking about advanced practice nursing, for example, there um, in Pennsylvania, we're having an issue where workman's comp is refusing to pay for procedures where CRNAs were the primary providers of anesthesia for people who under a workman's comp claim. And they, the person needed a procedure. They were given the procedure by a person who is certified to do that procedure. And they're just refusing to pay them because they're nurse anesthetists versus physicians. And they, and they, and they've already had the procedure. So it's, it's not like you can even (laughs) say, well, I can't give you the procedure because, you know, you've already done it. So the time was already spent. The drugs were already used you know, the OR time was already allotted for, and like, how is that right in any way, shape or form? That's, you know, it's theft in in any other industry when you were provided a service that you're not paying for. So, and the patients then become responsible and they're, they feel like they're not supposed to be responsible because they have this insurance claim. (laughs) So it's like this very convoluted, way of doing it. And it's interesting when you're, and I can imagine from a provider standpoint, like you, you have to negotiate with all of those insurance companies to get a rate. And then, you know, they're paying you differently than they're paying other people. And because everybody's negotiating differently. And it's the same when you're looking at hospital systems, you know, different insurance companies have different rates for different hospitals. And so there's zero transparency in what people are paying for things. 
And you sometimes and, don't um, even get paid. And you sometimes don't even get paid for reasons yeah. that you don't totally understand. And you just have to like, you know, call it a loss. And for this issue in particular, what's so disturbing about it is like, I would imagine if someone's on workers comp, they also can't work and so how is right. that person going to pay this bill? Right. Like how would they even pay this bill? And this is not a $200 bill. This must be like a $10,000 bill. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I, yeah. I don't know what the bills are. It kind of yeah. depends on whatever it is, yeah. but the point, your point is well taken. Yeah. If they're on workman's comp, they're probably yeah. not working. Yeah. How are they going to pay this <laughs> bill? I mean, it's no sounds, income coming in. Yeah. It sounds like they found a, you know, part, you know, insurance, their job is to not pay out claims right? Any right. sort of insurance, house insurance, medical insurance, like car insurance, they don't, that's part of their job, right? It's not to pay out claims. So it sounds like they've identified a pretty a, like good loophole for themselves to not pay right. claims. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 That's where, that's where it gets super convoluted, convoluted too. Yeah. So, and then I think, I think where people kind of miss the mark in this country when we're talking about like, well, you know, we should go to a one payer system and that sounds great, but also all of these insurance companies are so ingrained in our life. Like my 401k is wrapped up in blue cross. Hmm. If they go away tomorrow, guess who's yeah. going to work till she's dead. This yeah. girl, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. You yeah. know, and it's everyone. It's not just me. I'm not the, I don't hold the market on that. It's, it's in every money market account and every like we're, and it's not just Blue Cross, it's Cigna, it's, you know, CVS, it's all of these different companies that now are offering all this insurance. So it's like, I kind of have these mixed feelings. I want them to pay for stuff, but then they're, they're a business, they're an industry also, yeah. and their goal is to make a profit. So yeah, you don't want them to go out of business. No. And they also like, oh yeah. I mean, also like think about how many people are employed by commercial insurance. Right. Yeah, it would be a gig- it would be a huge shift. Yeah. The best way to do it would be to actually, if we're gonna have healthcare in capitalism, like we need to have healthcare insurance companies fight for our business and compete for our business. And that's what's not happening. There's no like competition for our business. They, you know, because healthcare is a human right, right? So people will, whatever healthcare they're able to get, they're going to accept it. Right. And then everything is localized, right? You can only get certain insurance in certain places because states are different and everyone has different regulations and people are most often required to get the insurance that their employer offers and that's it. Even yeah. with the Affordable Care Act, if you wanted to purchase insurance outside of your employer, you have to argue that it costs way too much money. There's a there's right. a price limit. Right. So, for example, if my employer was going to charge me, it's I think the number I'm, I don't want to mess it up, but I, th- I want to say it was like more than nine nine point six percent of my income then I could go to the insurance exchange and purchase insurance and be eligible for the subsidies and things like that right. that go along right. with it. But if it's, if they're not charging me that much money, then I have to take the insurance that's there. You're not eligible. And it doesn't yeah. matter if it's right. And it doesn't matter yeah. if it's terrible insurance or I don't want to take it for whatever reason, like who knows? Yeah. yeah. So it's super interesting. Fascinating stuff. Well, now that we solved all the world's healthcare problems, <laughs> at least all the healthcare problems in the United States. Have you had, um, uh, you need to get somebody on for abortion stuff, Angela. Have you oh had boy. Yet? 
I haven't yet. Yeah. Where yeah. I have, I have a list of, of people we need to do some, we need to revisit some women's health. We try and do it every so often. And we definitely need to, it's a big, important one. Yeah. New York has kind of become like a safe haven for women who can't get abortions elsewhere in the country. And this OBGYN was talking about how it's like really leading to burnout. Like they're burning yeah. out. Um, I imagine. Yeah. They're burning out. And she said that huge, that they're, they're kind of having the same crisis that nurses are having where OBGYNs are retiring, are going to start retiring in droves because they mm. are just like totally burnt out by this abortion crisis that we're in, in the United States. They just yeah. can't handle it. Yeah. You know, and they're retiring early. Yeah. It's pretty awful. Yeah. But yeah, you got to get somebody on Ange. Bridget, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. Is there anything else that you want to add before we go? No, I think um, we we talked about some really kind of controversial issues and I got challenged a lot today, which is always fun and helps me expand the way I think. And, you know, we've got a lot of challenges coming up, but I'm also really optimistic that this will be, the next 10 years will be a really exciting time for healthcare. We have a lot of good things changing and happening. Hello, Angela. Hello, Marion. How are you? I am super swell. How are you? Amazing. Your conversation with Bridget was so informative and so frustrating. And I had all the feels the entire time I was listening to it from like, oh my God, rage to, oh my God, <laughs> we have to do something. Uh, yeah. It was one of those, it was great. I hope everyone listens to it. I I hope so too. And I hope everyone appreciates it. I think that um, Bridget is so incredibly smart and knowledgeable about the space that she works in. And I was really fortunate to be able to have this conversation with her and and talk about, obviously we were talking about the Ryan Hyde Act specifically, but then we sort of segued into a bunch of different things that are happening in our, in our healthcare system. And the fact that she has the perspective of working very closely with a large group of Canadian people who, you know, so they're constantly talking about the differences in the systems and the the challenges that we're facing. So it was really, it was a great conversation. And I'm, I feel so fortunate to have people like her in my life that challenge, challenge me to, to learn more, to know more and to be better in how I look at all of these things in, in our healthcare space. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I learned a lot too. I mean, things that I sort of knew in concepts, like we spend the most money on healthcare and have the worst outcomes, but just the fact that we spend 20% of our GDP on healthcare and other countries spend 10% is just mind blowing to me. Yes. Yeah. We, we spend a lot of money. And when you think about too, in the context of it's such a large portion of our GDP, that's part of the reason why it makes it so difficult to change. Such a large portion of our GDP. And yet so many people in this country still suffer from lack of healthcare, lack of mental health. They're underinsured, uninsured, and not getting the care that they need because of exactly what you and Bridget were talking about. We're working off archaic bills and laws and rules that no longer exist 
is really difficult to change. I understand, but we really need to start thinking about how to right this ship for the good of our patients and our communities. Agreed. And I think that by having conversations like this and allowing people to talk about it freely, that's where the innovation is going to come from, right? As we start to kind of express these ideas and think about things in a different way and start to accept some of the innovation that comes out of it. And, and as, you know, as an industry, also healthcare, and we, Bridget and I were talking about this and you and I have talked about this before. We are so reluctant to make changes. Other industries move at lightning speed compared to healthcare. Yep. Which is crazy because we know now because of the pandemic, we know we can do it. We know we Mm -hmm. can change quick as the flash if we needed to. Yet, you know, we're reverting back to post-pandemic times just because... Just because that's the mystery, the big mystery. Yep. Yeah. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa DiDonato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. With special thanks to Jonathan Zhu for his assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time. Keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing Podcast and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you do your podcast listening. And if you can, please do us a solid and rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.